Good Friday morning, guys. My name is Jerry Miller, and this is Real Talk with Keith Smith. Thank you kindly for joining us live in downtown Charlottesville in the Macklin Building on the I Love Seville Network on a show presented by Keller Williams Alliance and just the trusted supply chain of real estate here in central Virginia. Visit Real Talk with Keith Smith and pull down the Partners tab, and you will see the people you can count on to get you to the closing table the home of your dreams, refinance your house, buy a second property. Um, I know firsthand, I've worked alongside a lot of these personally um, and professionally. Today's program, Keith Smith is traveling to Seattle. He's going to move his daughter, his son-in-law, and his granddaughter to Richmond, Virginia, as they've purchased a home in the capital of the Commonwealth, and they make the trip from the left coast to the right coast. Keith will be back... Um, I believe a week from today or the following week, um, but we have some folks in the uh, in the chair that are pros, pros, and today's guest absolutely embodies that quality. Um, Woody Fincham on the show. Judah will go studio camera in the two shot, and we'll welcome Woody Fincham, the founder of Fincham and Associates, my friend. Good Friday morning to you. Yeah, good morning to you. Thanks for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure. We'll start with a big picture question. From your standpoint, how is the market doing? It's going along splendidly. Um, it, we, I was doing some metrics this morning to prep for the show and just looking at you know each of the individual counties that are right around the Charlottesville and Albemarle area, and everything's just humming along splendidly. I mean, we're, everything's appreciating. We're seeing at least single-digit increases almost monthly, uh, particularly in Albemarle. Uh, Fluvanna is definitely picking up, and it's, it's, there's still a shortage of inventory, but you know that's, that's not a bad thing. Um, inventory shortage, John Blair, hello, is something we've been talking about. We, we percolated and speculated and scuttlebutt it on Wednesday's program with rates potentially dropping. And we've already seen rate, rates drop a nice chunk right. since Wednesday to today. Wednesday morning, seven and a quarter, CPI came in cool. 30-year fixed, I believe, is in the 6-8 window, depending mm-hmm. on uh, a lot of factors, good credit, payment history, et cetera, et cetera. But we've already seen a nice little drop here. Yeah. This is the question I got for you. If rates continue to fall, how do you expect this to impact the market? Uh, it's just going to put more stress on the low inventory. I mean, if you're trying to get a home, your your selection's very low, and uh, you may not be getting into your dream home, but you'll be getting into something, but you're going to be very competitive, and you're going to have to offer you know a good competitive offer to make it work. Do we think... Um do we think that the rates dropping will drive more inventory? Probably not. I mean, yeah. I, I you don't, don't think so. I, I, I don't, you know, like in my, I, I look at my own situation, which is anecdotal at best, but, um, you know, we, we're at two and, and three quarters and we've been in our home seven years now. I mean, typically, statistically, we would be ready to move about now because uh-huh. um, that's when most people will move. We're not going anywhere. Why would I sell a home to just put myself into a position where I'm, you know, going to pay a whole lot more? Number one, because I've got massive equity in the property. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of people are in that same same boat. Um, yours truly in that same boat. So that's the uh, that's the conversation we've been having. A lot of folks are watching this closely. Could it be more competitive for those trying to get a home with rates lower? Now, the lowered rates make things more affordable, but it's going to make the buyer pool deeper. Yep. Is that going to be a more competitive market for folks, or is the affordability factor going to offset the competitiveness? Well, I mean, increased competition with a finite inventory level, I mean, basic economics, I mean, it's just going to drive prices higher. Yeah, I think that's going to happen as well. Talk to us about your book of the your book of business. We are swamped. We've um, we've been doing a lot of private work uh, and an appraisal. What private work means is we're doing a lot of stuff for trusts and private purchases that aren't using lending or traditional lending. Uh, a lot of litigation, still a lot of divorce and partition suits and things like that going on. So, uh, and the local attorney. Um, uh, uh, populations have been very kind to us. We, you know, we're, 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 that's the work that we enjoy doing the most. So it's a lot of fun. Um, we have um, a book of business that you are um, appraising, or a portfolio of inventory that you're appraising, um, that I think the community may know well. Mm-hmm. The dogwood properties. I know there's not a lot you can say here. Sure. Um, shows yours on this. Yeah, um, you know, I can talk about it in general. Um, we uh, we just got done doing, a, a, I think it was about 25 properties that they, they just uh, purchased from uh, Woodard Properties. 
And uh, that was a fun project to do. Uh, it was uh, relatively uh, uh, chaotic because it's a lot of property to do in a short a period of time. But I think our first day of inspections, my son and I went out together, which is unusual because Woody's usually, my son Woody is generally just in the office doing analysis and things like that. But uh, he, um, he went out and did inspections. I think we did 16 the first day and then finished them up the next day. It was a very busy couple of days. Um, that is, uh, we'll follow those closely. Um, I like uh, that they use a local appraiser on that, one of the best in you. Other trends you think we should be following closely, then I'll get to some of these comments coming in. Well, I mean, really, I mean, things have been humming along almost, you know, status quo for the last several months as far as, you know, shortage of inventory goes. Um, we're seeing Green County is really coming along. I know there's a couple of uh, subdivisions coming online there in the next year or two, but potentially. Uh, and there's a lot of land for sale in green, you know, up around the, um, the Route 29 area. Fluvanna, where I live, you know, we're still kind of moving along. Colonial places um, uh, is coming along splendidly. I ride by that every day going to work, and, uh, you know, they've, they're already starting to dry all that in. So it's, it's neat seeing that come on, online. How about Albemarle County? Uh, Albemarle is, you know, like always, is the center of our universe here, basically, um, for the MSA, for the Metropolitan Statistical Area. So, or the region, I guess, is the easier way to say it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's it's going along splendidly. I mean, I was running metrics this morning where we looked at the county as a whole, um, even and that's considering the luxury property and you know the lower end property as well, and that's still appreciating at a good rate. Uh, when you go down to below seven hundred fifty thousand um, or lower and less than five acres, I mean, that's that's um, even more competitive. You know, there's a, there's larger consumer base buying in that market, so. Uh, it's definitely humming along nicely. The city of Charlottesville. Uh, it's, I mean, it's just like Albemarle. I mean, there's we're really watching with a lot of interest what's going to happen with the zoning changes. Um, you know, I've got several properties that we've appraised recently where, if that new zoning was into effect, it would really change the dynamics of how that property would probably transact. You're so, talking values. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Give us uh, without talking specifics um, a snapshot. Well, you know, I mean, with them kind of um, sneaking in that commercial uh, uh, development that can happen, uh, I think we're going to start seeing savvy investors and, and folks that want to get hold of property looking at leveraging that. I mean, there are definitely properties in the city that, you know, are in great locations for something that would be non-residential. Uh, and once you get investors involved that want to use it for non-residential purposes, the, the value of the land will change. The, the delta on that will go up. It seems there's a lot of like momentum and tailwinds with the investor model. You got rates dropping. Yep. We got this upzoning percolating. Mm -hmm. um, I was talking with someone who I believe is watching the program now that was following planning commission um, and following council and how they're going to potentially consider upzoning, or as Peter Krebs said, it's not just upzoning, it's also rezoning. Yes. Um, and it seems like council, especially after two after the uh, Democratic primary, is going to be all in on this upzoning and rezoning play. The investor over the next short period of time, as rates drop and as upzoning and rezoning become a reality, how do you see the investor playing in this market? Well, as long as investors are able to get cheap money uh, or cheaper money, they're, uh, they're going to look at parking it into an investment that, uh, that's going to give them a return. And what's a better return than you know, a market that's transitioning the way this one possibly will be transitioning once that zoning change happens? Um, unfortunately, you know, and I think you know, anytime policies are pushed through, there's always unintended consequences that come with it. And looking at my crystal ball, I think what it's going to do is stress uh, affordable housing. I don't think it's going to help it at all because if you've got investors looking at leveraging the ability to do something with it non-residentially or getting denser residential for rental portfolios, you're looking at a situation where rents are just going to go up and values of homes are just going to go up. I thousand percent agree with everything you just said right there. We'll get to these comments here in a matter of moments. Do you think rents are on the rise? Are rents flat or rents going downward? Uh, well, with that large portfolio we just did, we, we did a lot of rental analysis with that. Um, almost everything's driven by the income approach in, in those situations. And uh, we're showing appreciation on all the rents across the board. Really? Yeah. What kind of appreciation? Uh, it's not as severe as the... the COVID the appreciation? Line. No, okay. no, no. I mean, it's just, it's, it's normal for the market to naturally um, 
mature in a positive direction, you know, even when the market's normal. Of course, we're not in a normal market. Um, 25 years of doing this, I've never seen a market like we're in right now. And How do you characterize this market? It's uh, chaos. <laughs> Still. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, we're starting a lot of our single-family purchases that we do for lending. Um, they're multiple offers still. I mean, you know, we handle everything over in the, the valley from uh, Page County down to Lexington and then all the way to Louisa to the east and all the way to the West Virginia line to the west. And uh, I don't, other than, you know, maybe Buckingham and a couple of really small rural markets out west, everything's appreciating. You know, it's, we're not seeing anything. Now, um, some of the multi-market is stabilized uh, in the last several months, but that's probably going to change as interest rates go down. Um, put that in perspective. Um, give us that in a, in a more um, layman's. So um, when we were doing a lot of the market analysis in Dogwood, and this is just general information. It's not, not, nothing specific to what we were working on. But um, the multis, you know, two to, and we're, when, I'm a residential appraiser for the most part. So when I'm talking about multis, we're talking about small residential multis that go from two to four units. Anything above four units would be considered commercial property uh, or commercial residential. So for, the, for that small residential investment property, um, the last year or so, we've seen sales prices sort of normalize, meaning that they're not appreciate. They are appreciating, but at a very slow rate. Whereas, you know, a couple years ago and up into COVID, they were appreciating fast. Uh, but that, that's definitely slowed a little bit. I think a lot of that had to do with the interest rates in the fall. Uh, but, you know, with us looking at a, a downward trend, it, you know, more money is going to become available and that's, of course, going to put more stress on it. So, Do you think the market we're heading into will be more competitive for first-time home buyers than peak COVID? I don't. I mean, comp, using the word competitive in first-time home buyers is almost an oxymoron right now. I mean... Well said. If, if it's you're, more expensive now. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I mean, entry level, 400 grand or more. And, you know, there's not a lot available even at that price point. It's bananas right now. Um, all right, we'll get to comments here. Let's get to the one from Jonathan, and then I'll get to the other ones that are coming in on Twitter and on YouTube. He says, bring up the topic from Wednesday when new construction starts becoming a legitimate comp for a neighborhood. Basically, when does a new construction or a house that was just built get so long in the tooth that existing um, houses in the neighborhood can use that new construction as a comp? So the common sense answer from an appraiser perspective is this, is that when does something become comparable to something else? Well, it's when the, the consumer group is looking at the properties as alternatives to one another. So, and I assume from the question um, that we're talking about spot building in existing neighborhoods. That's right. Infill, okay. Yeah. So with infill construction, new construction typically is going to be its own market, even within an existing market. Um, I mean, if you've got a home that's 70 years old, it doesn't really compete with a new construction home. Uh, the design of the properties are usually vastly different because building science has changed so much in the decades between the properties. And now, if it's a remodeled home, that's a different story uh, where they've done a gut, you know, where all the mechanical and everything's been brought up to, to current code. Uh, they sometimes will compete with new construction. But, you know, we see a lot like, um, I can't think of the name of the street, but we just did a really big... Um, home that was built in an older neighborhood uh, off of Ridge. And it's, you know, you're comparing it to other things around the city that are, that are new being built in existing neighborhoods, you know, and you're just not going to, the two things really don't compete. I mean, and you were asking before the show about, you know, when does something go from new construction to you know, not new construction, um, using Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's rules and how they define it. It's anything that's less than a year. Um, if it can be lived in up to a year, then after that it's considered existing, but before that it's considered new construction. So that's, that's usually the filter that we'll use. Um, Tom Reynolds asking how he can listen, and Charissa Kwan. Oh, awesome. Um, has shared the link with Tom, and now they are listening uh, to you right now. Um, Sean Johnson, hello and welcome to the program. Tammy Wilt, welcome to the program. Remax and Nest, welcome to the program. Neil Williamson for Woody. This is a topic that everyone's talking about, so we, we, we should spend some more time on this. Sure. He says, while I respectfully disagree with Jerry and Woody regarding the impact of adding housing supply to the Charlottesville market, I am seeing very interesting statistics locally and nationally regarding increasing renter retention data. More housing everywhere for everyone for Neil Williamson. 
Neil's of the um, mindset, and we have a lot of love for Neil in this program, and I believe he's joining us next week, that if we increase the density in the supply, the prices will stabilize, which could breed affordability for the market. You and I are of the mindset that if we make the dirt more opportunistic yes. and the dirt more expensive because it is more opportunistic, then folks are going to have to pay more money for the dirt and the structures they're on it. Yeah. And if they pay more money for the dirt and the structures that are on that dirt, they're going to expect a larger return on investment on that purchase, which is just basic investor strategy. Sure. And as they expect more ROI for the, the opportunistic dirt that's more expensive and the structures that are on that dirt, they're going to come to market with price points that aren't necessarily affordable. And if you have this collision, it's going to continue to drive price points northward. That's a very layman flip book right there. I think so. Okay. So let's unpack this. The multiple people are asking here about the upzoning. Here's a great question from Kelsey. Why would this even be considered if it's a possibility of making things more expensive? I don't want to answer for you, but I have a feeling where your answer is going to go. I'll throw it to you on that, Kelsey's question. So uh, going back to Neil real quick, there's, not, there's few people in Charlottesville that I respect more than Neil. He's a great guy, uh, wealth of knowledge, and we're lucky to have him at Carr and you know, with a free, uh, free enterprise forum. Um, Agreed. So the the spirit of what they're trying to do i think is a positive thing but like in anything with the free market you know capitalism's a wonderful thing but it can also become toxic in some some uh, instances too and generally that's when people figure out how to leverage it to their own personal uh, advantage so i mean if if they do if people are going to use the upzoning to offer more homes and you know of course, they're going to try to get as competitive a rent as they can out of those properties. But in the end, I mean, if, if we're not going to have a lot of companies coming in and in, or investors coming in to own the properties and then leverage it up as high as they can, it will work well. I agree with Neil there. However, human behavior would dictate that they probably won't go that direction. I yeah. mean, if I had to guess, um, I would be very pleased to see Charlottesville personally, from my own perspective, to help with affordable housing to not allow commercial development uh, when they do this. This should only be for residential density building. It should not be for commercial. Okay, let's go through it. Let's go down that road. Yeah. Talk to us more about that. Well, I mean, you talked about on the show a couple weeks ago where, you know, there's a possibility with the way they've got this, this written right now that, you know, they could, someone could buy a couple of residential lots in a residential district and put a 7-Eleven in or a vape store or a cannabis store or, you know, whatever. Um, it would be a non-residential use. What happens in those situations is that oftentimes the properties adjacent to them will become not less valuable but less desirable in the sense that it's going to become renter-occupied, not owner-occupied. Um, it's also going like, – if you put a petrol station or a gas station in the middle of a residential zone, no one wants to live next to that. And generally speaking, it's going to be lower rent property when, when you get into that. So it could actually cause blight in the neighborhood if you're not careful. Uh, I mean, that's being extreme. No, but, but I mean, that's that's I, we see that happen. Yeah, that that ha that's happening in Charlottesville. We see that happen sure. now. Um, all right, I'll throw this to you here. This is something that also should be highlighted. If the dirt is opportunistic and the structures on the dirt are potentially upzoned for more density, we could be taking away housing in its current form. That is more affordable mm -hmm. and making it more expensive. So we could be doing the opposite of breeding affordability because we're making investors, we're, we're making the, the potential buy more attractive to investors, mm -hmm. and those potential buys would have potentially been there for first-time home buyers or second-time move-up buyers. Um, your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, I agree with it. I mean, you go to any large metropolitan area, like just say Chicago. I mean, I spend a lot of time in Chicago um, for various reasons. Uh, if you go anywhere near the, the central business district, real estate's ridiculously expensive, right? Uh, the same thing's going to happen with interior Charlottesville. I mean, we are a very small metro when it comes down to it. But in the end, if you want to be downtown or close to downtown, you're going to pay more to be there. Um, this isn't going to make it more affordable if it goes the direction I think it's going. Um, it would be nice to see Albemarle open up some more development zones. That would help more than anything else. Uh, I was in a meeting a couple days ago that Keith Smith was running um, for the housing. Um, I can't think of it. The Thomas Jefferson um, 
Planning District Commission? Yes, thank okay. you. My, my brain's not working. Um, and, you know, there were developers and, and, you know, stakeholders from all over the, the, the housing um, industry there in the county as well. And, you know, they're trying to figure out what to, you know, how to solve the problem. And, you know, a lot of folks were suggesting, hey, you know, let's, let's, let's get rid of a lot of the requirements because it adds a lot of costs to what's going on. And let's get some more land open to development, even out in the rural areas maybe. Um, manufactured homes were brought up because that is an affordable way to go. Uh, you can put in a whole lot more units at a manufactured home level than you can uh, with traditional stick build. Um, Jesse Rutherford, Nelson County Board of Supervisor, hello. Holly Foster, hello. Peter Krebs was on yesterday's show. Piedmont Environmental, the Piedmont Environmental Council, hello. James Watson, hello. Brent Lillard, the real estate investor and the CEO of GovSmart, hello. Jeremy Rowe, hello. Kevin Yancey, Jamie Turner, Lisa Costello, Dave Warwick, hello. Lauren and Keswick, Lonnie Murray, hello. Michael Plecker, Jason Howard, Kelly Lewis, Scott Q, Johnny Ornalis, Georgia Gilmer, Richard Fox, Dino, hello. Guys, if you have questions, put them in the feed. This is a great one from Grayson. How is this going to impact Almoro County? What happens in Charlottesville with density and zoning? Will it have an influence? Albemarle's got an opportunity here to, um, to open up land if they can. Um, you know, there's, they, I don't know how much land Albemarle actually owns, uh, but if they, you know, th there was some discussion about a land bank possibly. Um, that would be a good thing, I think, uh, if it's handled correctly. Um, I mean, Albemarle has got a lot of land. I mean, not the county itself, but I mean, just Albemarle in general, geographically, there's a lot of land there outside of the metro area. So I would hope that, you know, we, we would see some more developments coming online, but not developments that are, you know, only hardy plank and only, you know, require 2,500 square feet, you know, or, or larger. You know, we need to see some developments come online that would, would accommodate smaller homes. And vinyl siding is a perfectly fine uh, exterior finish for, for homes. I mean, we don't have to make it, you know, so expensive for folks. Um, some of the viewers and listeners of the talk show here outside the door right now. I see that's why we locked the door. Do you think <laughs> Almaro County will change or will influence or will get influenced by the city with with upzoning in any capacity. I mean, here, Diantha McKeel sat in that chair right yeah. next to you and said, there's no reason, her exact words, I'm not putting words in her mouth, Roger Voisinet says, hello, uh, Woody Fincham from Virginia Beach. Awesome. He's watching at Virginia Beach right now. Um, and Diantha McKeel, supervisor, Elmore County, Jack Jewett District, she said, there's no reason for us to expand the developmental area in Elmore County. It's 5% right now. Only 5% of Almoro County is designated for commercial and residential development. She said, there's no reason for us to expand this if our current 5% that's allocated is not at full capacity. Those were her exact words. Um, do you see, maybe it's the old guard, I want to say, influence at all by Charlottesville City? Or is there not the political capital to do that? I don't think, you know, legacy... Um politicians are going to change their mind. I mean, you know, here's the thing. When you're dealing with an affluent community like we have, the affluent folks in that community, they have time to lobby. They have time to talk to their politicians. The people who are really being affected by this, you know, young parents, you know, people that are working in service jobs, they're too busy working and taking care of their families to engage at the political level. So, I don't think the politicians are actually aware of what the real problems are here. I mean, because those folks that really need the help aren't, aren't engaging them. Well, I, that's fair. Scott Moore says, good morning, Woody Fincham. Scott, hey, Scott. we love you. Um, here's right. You know, I'll, I'll throw this to you. I think the politicians are aware, but I think the politicians are doing, are making policy and governmental decisions mm -hmm. based on what their constituents want. Which, to your point, the constituents that are in their ears are the yes. ones that have the deep pockets. Okay. That are the ones that want to keep the county the same. Sure. Or like the ones that maybe want more density because they want to live here. They're not living here right now because they can't afford it. Right. So they can't be chirping in the ears of, say, Supervisor Malik is either, either in her fourth or fifth term. Diantha McKeel is in, what, her second or third term. Okay. We got Lepisto currently running for a second term right here. We do have some potential youth coming on the board, and Mike Pruitt, who's running unopposed in the Scottsville district, 
Um, but Pruitt's only one of six votes. Right. Um, Pruitt will join us on the I Love Sievel show next week, guys. Um, so to, to Woody's point, I don't think the political capital is there to, to expand the develop, development area. And as long as it's only 5% for housing and for commercial, the supply is going to be so constrained that the prices are going to go up, which is your business, yeah. which is what you do. Thoughts on any of that? Well, I mean, we've got to have a change in philosophy locally if, if, if we're going to develop more. And people move to Charlottesville. They love it the way that it is. But this nimbyism, the not-in-my-backyard folks, and that's a lot of people. And, you know, if you talk to anybody on an individual basis and say, hey, we have an affordable housing issue, our service people can't get into homes because they've been priced out of it. If you talk to them individually, they'll say, great. But if you talk to them as a group in their neighborhood, they're going to say, well, it's great, but we would like that to be in another part of the county, not next door to us. So that's that's the reality of what we're working with. And, I mean, from a, a business perspective, from my business, of course, I want to see more development. It makes more money for my company. Uh, our revenue will go up because of it. But, you know, I mean, I live here, and I want to see Charlottesville continue to be as great as it's always been. And to do that, we've got to afford some of those folks that can't, afford to live here to be able to live here. Great take right there from Woody. Neil says this. Guys, put the questions in the feed. I'll relay them live on air. Give Woody Fincham props in the comment section. I'll relay it live on air. This a follow-up based on what Nicole Scro is trying to do. Nicole, Nicole Scro is a, um, a developer. She's a home builder. Um, and he, Neil says, can the current land prices support smaller home developments? Um, Nicole, and I follow her on Twitter, um, has it was um, it was a few days ago. Um, she had an interaction with um, John Blair started this mm-hmm. on Twitter. John's watching on LinkedIn, and he showed a jurisdiction where it's um, a major home developer. I'm going to go to Twitter and find what that major home developer's name was. Was doing essentially row houses, mm-hmm. and these row houses had very little space. They were single family detached. But there was very little space between each of the houses. Okay. And the developer was trying to maximize rooftops on dirt right. to drive value. But while also maximizing rooftops on dirt, they were able to create a more affordable product because they had more of them sure. that they were able to pass on the savings potentially or a lower price to the market. Right. So Scro, and this was on Twitter... Um, asked the question, can the current land prices in our area, Albemarle and Charlottesville, let's talk, support smaller home developments? Well, you know, the meeting I was mentioning a couple days ago, I, I don't work in the development side of things, but we got to hear a lot of developers talk. And, I mean, one lot, apparently, from what I have gathered from that meeting, is that you're looking at $100,000, $120,000 per lot uh, just, just to get it going. Um, that's... To answer your question, with that kind of price in there, no. I, I don't think What's the multiple based on price generally if a lot is purchased for this? So in my career, we've seen it go anywhere from about 20 to 30% of the total cost. So, you know, when I'm doing allocation studies and things like that to figure out what land would be worth in an improved neighborhood, that's generally where we're going to be, about 25%. So if a whole... Basic math. A whole... A lot is 100 k mm-hmm. You're looking at something that's going to be say 300 to 500 minimum and yep. it's probably in this area closer to five yep. with cost of goods labor labor is extremely expensive in this area mm-hmm. um cost of goods are stabilizing a little bit but they're certainly pricey and the interest rate environment is costly yep is that a fair read it is um so will we see any of this small home development do you think locally only if we can get rid of some of that cost. And I don't know what that means. Does it mean putting together grants for things like this, uh, tax programs? I mean, that, and some of this we're talking about would have to happen at the state level. You know, I mean, um, I don't know what's available out there. I mean, the community land trust system that's been coming up over the last couple of years here, that's worked really well, but it's very finite. You know, they can only do but so much. But, I mean, that essentially removes that land cost to the borrower and it, it does help folks get into a situation where they can you know, get something more affordable. Um, this has been put on the feed from Spencer. Do you expect the university to capitalize or to take advantage of the more density in the city of Charlottesville? And if the University of Virginia does do that, won't that just backfire on residents? 
That's a good question. Well, they've already acquired a lot of property around uh, their new development over there for the, the conference center. And, you know, we did several of the private assignments when, you know, they were the foundation was coming in to buy up that property. Um, so, I mean... Can I ask you about any of those, or you prefer not to talk about it? I mean, I can talk in general about it. Okay. So, um... But, I mean, you know, they, they have deep pockets, and they're willing to pay for what they need to do. I mean, they've got a vision for what they want to do, and will they take advantage of the upzoning? I don't know. I mean, uh, I would hope that um, they don't put further stress on the market, but, I mean, you know, they're going to do what they need to do, again, because they have their vision for what they want to do. Neil, will you share the stat you shared, um, I think it was last week or earlier this week, on the university's goals when it comes to enrollment over the next handful of years? Um, if memory serves correct, the university in totality, three to 4,000 additional students, their goal to enroll Over at what UVA. period of time? That's what I want to know. Neil, if you could share that period of time, that would be fantastic. It was a great comment. And then what I'll do is I'll save that um, on my file here with key data points. I, I want to say it was by 2045. So we're talking 20 years. I, I hope he shares it. But this is this is what I think. You know, per year, I, uh, we're talking that many per year. No, just in total. Yeah, that's not much. I mean, that's a lot of bad. You know, how, that uh, would I mean, be houses. Sure. It's more, but I yeah. mean, I mean, that's almost at an attrition rate over that period of time, though. Well, we'll see, you know, here's here's what I here's what I think is going to happen. Um, and and I'm just trying to read the uh, tea leaves. And you've already touched on this. You got Ivy Road, mm-hmm. which you know well. You got the Data Science School, the Hotel and Conference Center. You got the Kempton Hotel over on Ivy Road that also has a conference center. Right. So in a 24-month period of time, we went from essentially no conference centers to having two. Right? Yeah. UVA is going to own one. The Kempton's going to have one. Right. Data Science School is very close in the old Cavalier uh, Inn Hotel spot. Right. Um, on Ivy Road. Um, great location. Great location. Phenomenal location. We used to stay there when my dad went to UVA, I went to UVA, my brother went to UVA, and when they came to visit my brother and I at the University of Virginia, they stayed at the Cavalier Inn because they could walk everywhere. We already know that the biotech school, they've already said it's 2,000, 3,000 new jobs. They've on record said right. coming here out of market jobs. Um, and we also know that they're going to expand enrollment. So, Yeah, those two things working together, that's a different story. Those, oh, jobs, okay. the, the, yeah. those, those households that are going to come online because that will need to come online to, for those new jobs definitely going to add more stress to the market. I put something along the lines of this on Twitter, um, and the UVA School of Data Science retweeted my tweet, essentially verifying what I said. And what I said on Twitter was the, um, the school was going to strengthen the economy. Mm-hmm. The school was going to create an ecosystem around data science where new businesses that are not currently in this market will open up to poach the talent that's coming through the school, creating essentially this economic ecosystem around a space. Or, Judah, if you can handle that, please, right there. Around a uh, space of uh, study or education right. that is hugely popular right now. Thoughts on any and all of this? Uh, number one, the data science school, I think, is a great direction for the university to go. I mean, I work in data science with what I do. And, you know, if I were a younger person, I would definitely be looking at my master's there. Um, but um, I don't know. I mean, and I'm just, I'm asked, I'm going to offer an anecdotal personal opinion on it. I mean, people who get into that business don't need to be geographically located where it is, right? I mean, most of our tech folks are working remotely now. I mean, that's, that's a, a post-COVID reality. So I don't know. Is it really going to bring that many companies in? I don't know. Um, but I'm just looking at that with a little bit of skepticism from that perspective. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, with the new jobs and everything else and all the services that will have to come up to, to go along with it, I mean, it's obviously going to increase the amount of population that we have here. I mean, there's no question there. Here's the stat. Um, Mayor Snook offered this stat. He said the University of Virginia would grow by 1% annually. 1% annually. Okay. That would mean 4,000 new residents in 20 years. This came up at a zoning work session between city council and planning commission. That's a quote from the mayor. Okay. 1% annually, um, 4,000 new residents over the 20-year period of time. That's what? Now, we're talking long-term residents, not student residents. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, long-term residents, not student residents. Okay. Your thoughts on that stat? I mean, again... What I don't understand is why are we not looking at going vertical? 
air development rights should become a thing here. Um, they really aren't because we want to keep this bucolic, Jeffersonian, small-town look. Um, I think we're starting to see a need to start going vertically. Uh, I mean, we need our downtown really does need to go up. I mean, why, why are we not looking in that direction? I mean, because we're obviously not do, doing very well expanding on the horizontal level. So let, let's look at the vertical. Well, is there the political capital to do that's the question? That's, you know, that's going to have to change. <laughs> um, do you think it's, Kevin, I'll get to your comment here in a matter of moments. Do you think vertical is a realistic reality? I mean, in the, in the current uh, the temperament that we have here now, no. I mean, I, I think it's silly that we're not looking more at it. Um, you know, I, I just, I don't know. Charlottesville can't look the same in 40 years that it looks right now. I mean, if we continue to, to try to develop in the horizontal level, we're just going to create suburban sprawl. Um, we do need more density around around the core of our, our, our region, and that that is Charlottesville. So, I mean, why we're not looking at it or not willing to go in that direction, uh, I'll never understand. Kevin in Waynesboro, Charlottesville decided in the 70s and 80s that shopping centers and restaurants were more important than large employers. During that time, there were four to, f- four to five large employers in Charlottesville. Now there are, what, two or three? Let's think the large employers in Charlottesville. You've got, obviously, the University of Virginia. Well, you've got your hospitals. You've got Centera, your hospitals. Centera and the University Hospital are major employers. CFA. No, yeah, CFA, definitely. We Is lost State Farm. Lost um, State Farm. Uh, Injic, of course. Yeah. Um, Let's gosh, see. I was just looking at all this literally two days ago, <laughs> and I don't remember. Um, University of Virginia, Centera, uh, Martha Jefferson, mm-hmm. um, obviously Charlottesville City and Albemarle County. Right. The CFA Institute, Northrop Grumman. Yes. Um, Crutchfield's a fairly large employer. Sure. Um, Kroger and Harris Teeter, just because they have multiple locations, um, a fairly large employer right there. I guess you could say any of the grocery stores. Right. Um, Aramark um, has got a fair amount of employees. Right. Um, and they do the dining, run the food halls for UVA. Right. Um, but really not a ton. No. Um, and I would imagine the large employers don't need to be necessarily based in a high cost of living area like this because people can work remotely and hybridly. Roger says Apex and Willow Tree should be on that list. Yeah, they should. Yeah. He's on Virginia Beach. Um, so we do have the employer traction there. The question is, why would a large employer set up shop in a high cost of living area like this when their employees may not be able to afford to live here? Well, I mean, I could see an executive management level uh professionals coming here. Uh, I think, you know, we, we've seen that with some of the te- smaller tech companies that are, that are coming in or, or that have come in. Um, you know, they're, they're making uh, salaries that they can afford to live in the area. Uh, but yeah, your normal, you know, you know Joe Smith um, worker is not going to be able to come into an area like this unless they're going to go out into a, a very rural sector of the market. Um, from from uh, Jennifer here, she says, why not more condos or apartments in this area? We've come here from uh, Northern Virginia, and townhomes and condos were everywhere. Why don't we see them in Charlottesville and Almaro? It's a good question. There's just not a political appetite for it right now. You think that would change? I don't think, you well, think it evolution's uh, going to happen. I mean, change is inevitable, but uh, you know, timing of the change is you know that's the uh, the million dollar question, right? I mean, when's it actually going to happen? Right. Absolutely. Um, guys, comments I'm going to get to here in a matter of moments. Um, this is a very good one. Um, Grayson follows up by saying, the interest rate environment, if you guys can get back onto that topic, many times folks have said on this talk show that when rates drop, the inventory is going to pick up. Now it seems the tune has changed a little bit. Please take a deep dive on rates. Well, inventory might actually increase to some degree. However, if you've got more buyers coming in than inventory to support it, then you still remain in a negative position, right? I mean, it's just a net negative, um, which just drives competition, and competition means higher prices. So, I mean, I, we, we probably will see some more inventory coming on, but I, will it keep up with the pace of, you know, the, the amount of consumers coming into the market that will buy? And I don't think, the, I think the answer is no. Um, this is a great one um, from Cara on LinkedIn. 
She says, remote workforce needs to be supported by housing with fiber internet and stable and supported small businesses, small and medium-sized businesses that provide a variety of things to do and places to eat. That's a damn good comment. Yeah. I'll read, I'll read that one again, and then you unpack this for the viewers and listeners. Um, remote workforce needs to be supported by housing with fiber internet and stable and supported small and medium-sized businesses that provide a variety of things to do and places to eat. Unpack that for us. Well, I mean, once you get out into the uh, um, the less urban areas and less suburban areas in the county, I mean, the Internet's not great. Um, self-service is not great. Uh, so, I mean, you do need those two things in order to, to help remote workers take advantage of being out in those rural areas. I mean, uh, Nelson County is an example. You know, that high-speed trunk they put through the valley uh, really helped them. I mean, when COVID came on strong, I mean, it's proof in, proof in the pudding. You know, you've got a lot of folks that are living, that are living in Wintergreen and um, uh, the Wintergreen, what's the name of the subdivision down on the valley floor? Stony... Um, Stony Point? Stony Creek? Yeah, Stony Creek. I mean, you're seeing a lot of full-time residents there where those were mostly second, you know, second homes or vacation homes for a lot of folks, uh, particularly in Wintergreen. But, you know, I'm, I, we do a tremendous amount of work up there. And uh, we're seeing a lot of folks now that are, that are living there permanently because they've got the Internet to support them. And stuff like that around the, the more rural areas or, and less populated areas would be great. I mean, like in Fluvanna, we were able to get a part of the Firefly thing that, that was coming out there um, uh, with, the co- with the electric co-op. And that's worked out really well for a lot of folks. So. Um, I will put in a plug, and, and I think she's going to like this, for um, Ting Fiber Internet. That's what our building is running on here. Um, and this network is running on. And since we made the transition from Com- Comcast to Ting, the network's been stronger than ever. And our, and our 24 tenants in this building have been more happy than ever. Um, I also was showing one of our office spaces yesterday to um, residents in Nelson County that were building a custom home in Nelson County. They bought the dirt. They're literally building the house now. And they said if it wasn't, and I'm drawing a blank on the Internet provider, if it wasn't for this specific um, fiber provider and internet uh, of internet, they would not have purchased this dirt or or uh, chosen to build their forever house there. Right. Um, any viewer and listener, Jesse Rutherford, can you help me on that? The provider of internet that is coming to Nelson. I should know that. I literally had this conversation yesterday. Um, is it Firefly. Uh, I'll, one of the viewers and listeners will help us here. Um, do you think that <coughs> this community is becoming so expensive that the small and medium-sized business is struggling to have sustainability and long-term success here? And if so, what is the fallout of that? Well, I mean, Charlottesville is full of entrepreneurs. There's a lot of small business, medium-sized business here. Um, you know, my, my company being one of the small businesses, um, it's for us, I mean, we live in Fluvanna, you know, we don't pay a business license fee. There's a lot of advantages to being out in the rural area like that. You have no business license fee there? No. Get out. No. That's awesome. I honestly think they should actually go with it so we can get some more, um, resources for, for the kids out there. Well, okay. So I'm learning something here. Yeah. Personally, what's the business taxes in Fluvanna? There aren't any. There's zero business tax? No, I don't pay any business taxes to Fluvanna. Oh my God. Now, um, I'm sure they get I'm some sales tax, but they don't get hammered any. in the city of Charlottesville. Yeah, it's expensive. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, 90% plus of the jurisdiction is funded by residential taxes, mm-hmm. rooftop taxes, yeah. right? Um, so they're making it up in some ways there. Um, get out. So what would prevent, and, and I'm just talking out loud here. You just literally flabbergasted me. Um, what would prevent somebody from setting up shop in Fluvanna and doing business all over Central Virginia digitally through the internet or an ISP. Nothing. That's what you guys are doing. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, we're still on Comcast, which we hate, by the way. Um, we are switching to Fire- Firefly, but um, uh, you know, when I'm uploading, um, some of our files get 30, 40, 50 meg, and when you're uploading on the speeds that Comcast, it takes forever. Do, it's it's horrible. Yeah. Um, Jason Howard on Rio Road, you've talked about the labor issues in Charlottesville and the switch to kiosks and other forms of automation. 
Are you seeing more of your clients using these kinds of solutions instead of the labor they can't find? I am seeing more of our clients using automation. The yeah. small and medium-sized business, however, doesn't have the financial resources to do it. So as business um, businesses head to automation and kiosks, it really gives a leg up to those brands that are well-capitalized and or publicly traded and or chains or corporations. Do you want to unpack that at all? I mean, we are inundated daily with uh, the new AI technology that's coming out to assist small business and also with virtual workers. And, of course, we don't use any of that. I mean, um, now I don't have a, an actual office where all my people work. Everybody's remote. So I guess it's virtual in that respect. But, you know, we're, we, we get marketed to all the time. And the problem with it is that it is expensive. You know, I, as a small business owner, I can't justify the expense for some of that. Um, so we're, we're keeping everything with, you know, our normal workforce that we would normally use. Of course, we're not very large. I mean, there's there's uh, 10 of us total. So I mean, I, I'm literally, while hosting this talk show, thinking about building an 800-square-foot or renting an 800-square-foot office or studio and just doing the I Live Seville show from Fluvanna. And that would legitimately save us tens of thousands of dollars in taxes. Like, well, do, do the Mark Marin uh, podcast thing. You know, he does it out of his garage. <laughs> yeah, that legitimately would save me off the rip tens of thousands of dollars. Um, Bill McChesney, mayor of McIntyre, Jesse James had a gun. The city of Charlottesville has taxes and fees. Um, this is a very, very good question from Thomas. How has ChatGBT influenced Woody's business or could influence Woody's business? We've been watching that with a lot of interest. A lot of my colleagues that are appraisers tend to be, a lot of us tend to be kind of on the techie side. We're all nerds. Um, and uh, some of the folks that have really gotten into ChatGPT uh, have actually been feeding market analysis information into it and things like that. It actually writes a rather cogent um, amount of narrative. Now, it uses old data. I mean, some of the data is a couple years old, and, you know, I think that's where ChatGPT kind of stops. But um, if it was using current data, I mean, I would say that in a lot of cases, the technology is outriding some of my colleagues. Um, co comments are coming in very, very quickly here. Uh, Firefly and Lumos and Chantel and Ting all providing um, that Internet. Um, Kara, thank you very much for that on nice. LinkedIn. Um, folks are asking more of the ChatGPT piece. Can ChatGPT become, I don't think it can become the appraiser. No. Yeah. Um, it, it's a tool. So technology like that works really well when you've got a human being interacting with it. A human being by, its, by themselves works great, but they're not at the most efficient thing. Uh, AI, uh, artificial intelligence, works really well in how it works when you put the two together, it's like uh, if you remember Steve Jobs talking about you know uh, the most you know the slowest thing in the world is a, a person walking, but you put them on a bicycle, they're the most efficient thing moving ever. Um, it, that's really what what AI should be. It's a bicycle to the worker or to the appraiser. So I think between the two things, I think we're going to end up with a um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for. Uh, I mean, the, the symbiotic relationship between the two, I think, will be greater. Uh, the, the, what is it? The sum of the parts is greater than the, the old saying. Sorry, my brain's just... Um, but, I mean, I, it's a great tool. And technology in the hands of a, of a well-trained analyst or appraiser, I think uh, it's a positive thing. But one by itself, I don't, I don't think AI is going to replace us. Um, this question has been a follow-up from Jennifer. She says, which part of the real estate supply chain is most susceptible to being beat by chat, GBT? By beat, I think she means um, replaced or cannibalized. Uh, when you get into uh, homogenous neighborhoods, you know, like when you're in Forest Lakes or you're in some parts of Lake Monticello and places like that where you've got everything's the same. Of course, Lake Monticello, everything's not the same. But the Forest Lakes, you know, you've got a lot of very similar stuff. Um, really bad appraisers and really bad agents do really well in neighborhoods like that because if you can fog a mirror and you've got a credential, you can do what you do uh, without any problem. There's no real, real uh, analysis there. Uh, I think where it's going to break down is where you get out into markets where you actually have to uh, do in-depth analysis and understand what you're doing. Um, this has come via DM. And let me see if I can use um, his name as it's loading. Um, all right. He says he requests anonymity for this question. Question for Woody. A house in our neighborhood had a... Wow. Okay. I see why he wanted an anonymity on this one. Um, question for Woody. A house in our neighborhood had a murder-suicide last year. 
Now they are selling and have had to drop the price well below market. How does this impact an appraiser's approach to valuing the houses around it? Is the situation considered or does it drive down values? It very much should be considered. Um, How would you know that? I've done two properties in my career that involve murder-suicides. One a murder and the other murder and several murders and a suicide. Um, And it very much will stigmatize the property. Um, You know, it's bad. Sorry to use such a a layman term, but it's just bad juju, you know. I mean, uh, oftentimes properties like that are going to get torn down. Uh, because, I mean, if you go to any of the major properties, like, um, say, the John Bonet Ramsey home out in Colorado, or you go to look at, uh, like, the Nicole Simpson properties and things like that, those properties aren't there anymore. They readdress them and they re, uh, rebuild them because people just don't want to live in them. Now, there are some notable exceptions. You know, like, I think Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails famously lived in a, in a, in a murder home and liked it. But, you know, that's sort of an odd taste. <laughs> How does the appraiser, does it, would the appraiser know about the murder-suicide just from following the news? And what happens if the appraiser does not know about the murder-suicide and just sees the sales price? Well, um, it could be a problem. Uh, I mean, the very, one of the most important tools that I have at my disposal is called Google. And when I get an assignment, I'm going to put the address in and look and see. Um, there you go. And, you know, those are things you need to know. Do now, all appraisers do that? No, no, no. I mean, uh, so you would basically be like, I see a red flag here. Why did this why did this house in this Tony neighborhood or why did this house when the comps in this neighborhood would suggest it should not sell at this price, this deep of a discount? And then that your professional would would um, raise red flags Mm -hmm. um, and get you to do more research into potentially what happened. You type in the address and then perhaps the news you see in the news cycle there. What happens if it's not in the news cycle? Well, I mean, I've never seen a situation where it's not. I mean, that's usually a very notable thing for any community. Um, uh, I mean, it's possible, I guess, that it's going to skate under the radar. And if it's skating under the radar, then the market's not going to be aware of it. So this is more follow-up from the gentleman who wants anonymity. Um, it should be worth 630 but they have had to drop it down to 565 It keeps falling in and out of contract as well, and it was not really in the news cycle. Right. But someone's finding out about it, though. That's why that, 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 that cycle's happening. Okay, how about this? So this is the brander coming out of me and the advertiser coming out of me. Yeah. And this is an idea for the gentleman who's requesting anonymity here. Should the residents in the neighborhood pull their resources and create a branding mechanism, a website, tied to the address of that house that depicts what happened in this location and why the price point is what it is? Oh, that's a big, uh, that's a big question. I, I mean, honestly, I don't know. Um, generally speaking, I've never, never seen that happen. So I, to, to say what, what they should or shouldn't do. or Because I would imagine would the neighborhood is nervous. Sure. Seeing the home trade for so low. But here's the thing, though. Okay. That, that's that's going to be what we call a duress, uh, a, a sale under duress. Okay. So there's, there's market forces at play there that are economically making that an inviolable comp. So... Yes, when you are having another appraiser come out to appraise your property and that property that we're talking about is in the neighborhood, I would probably be the first conversation I'm having with that appraiser. Because unfortunately with residential, we'll have the appraisal management companies and the lenders that you, they want to get the cheapest appraiser they can. And oftentimes what that means is they're going to hire someone from two hours away to come in and do it for half the cost of what, say, a firm like mine would do it for. Um, I'm local. I know what's going on. Uh, real estate's very local. And when you bring in people from outside the market to do it, they may not be aware of that situation. So that's a conversation that those those residents should be having with their agents and with their appraisers as they're coming in to work for them. Um, because, you know, again, you know, if you're going with the cheapest, you're probably not going with the most uh, informed people. Um, so this has opened up a Pandora's box of comments sure. here. Um, I had never even thought about this, dude. This is why I love sitting across from you. Um, I literally got blown away is the wrong terminology here because of what we're talking about here. I literally had my mind taken (laughs) aback by the Fluvanna County tax topic on businesses, literally. Um, So the businessman in me is thinking about that. Now this topic I hadn't even really thought of either. So the comments are clearly resonating with the viewers and listeners, listeners because I don't think they've even thought about this either. So this one's coming. What's the difference between a natural death or a murder-suicide when it comes to valuing homes. 
I would imagine a huge difference. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, um, again, bad juju, going back to that term. I mean, uh, people can be um, very, what's the word, um, superstitious, you know, and, and violent deaths are something that our society, unfortunately, we experience it, but we get enamored with it, too. I mean, it's uh, it creates all kind of... Um, uh, situations around it. So, you know, I mean, look at all the, I mean, just Netflix or any of that. I mean, how much true crime documentaries out there? It's, my it's, wife loves it. Yeah, my wife does too. Yeah. Um, she'll go down a rabbit hole for days watching that stuff. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, in the end, I mean, we're infatuated with it. So, with it comes, you know, there are people that are going to say, hey, you know, I'm superstitious for whatever reason. I, I, I'm not going to live in a home where a violent death has occurred versus a natural death where, I mean, we all die. I mean, that's, that's just a, a, the reality of the situation. So, you know, I mean, and, and if you're, I mean, if you're lucky, you get to die at home, you know, in, in, in your own bed. And you're not in a hospital or it's not a violent thing. So, I mean, I, I think that's just a natural thing. Um, I don't believe Virginia requires disclosure of natural death. I'm not sure about the violent stuff, though. That's a question that just got put on the feed. Yeah. Would I, that I, I be in know. the disclosure and the listing? I mean, if I were if I were handling the listing as an agent, and again, I'm not an agent, so I'm just. But you do have a real estate license. No, no, okay. I have an appraiser's license. Appraiser's license. Yeah, okay. uh, I tried to be an agent for about a year and yeah. didn't like it. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I like data, but more than I like holding hands. Um, but mass respect to the people who do it. Um, but uh, I'm not quite sure if they have to or don't have to. Uh, I know in certain states it is a requirement. But if I were handling a listing, I would want to be upfront about it. You know, just, I mean, being transparent is the best way to do business. Um, this is a great um, comment that's come in. And before we do, we'll highlight some of the viewers and listeners that are watching. Paul Charon, Sharon. Charon, oh, awesome. Hey, watching in Massachusetts. I believe he's an appraiser as well. Yep. Um, folks in Northern Virginia, Richmond, Short Pump, and Southwestern Virginia on the feed. This is a good question. Um, which comps are removed from the appraisal algorithm if they check in way lower than the rest of the neighborhood? Or is that comp not removed from what Woody? Does and that's from Sloan, who is watching and short pump. So when I'm doing my analysis to figure out how I'm going to value a property, of course, I'm, we rely heavily on comparable sales. So we'll take a, a, all the comparable sales. I mean, in like in a neighborhood like Forest Lakes or, or like Monticello, I might have three pages of single, you know, eight font single space uh, data points that I can look at for comps. But what I'm going to start looking at is I'm going to array those comps and I'm going to go, okay, most of my sales occurred in this, you know, this part. If I've got stuff that's really low and stuff that's really high, I'm going to start asking questions about those comps and go, you know, there's something different here. Why are they outside of the normal? And if they're outside of the normal and there's a good reason for it, I mean, uh, if it's really low, there could be lots of things going on. It could be a, a court-ordered sale for a divorce. It could be a situation where someone was getting ready to go into foreclosure and they sold low. Or, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why the participants in the transaction are not acting in their best interest or are not able to act in their best interest by getting the highest price that they can. So those things should be excluded in analysis when you're in a market like we are because, you know, um, they're not normal sales. Um, Lori watching. Love when uh, awesome. Mrs. Fincham watches. She goes, aren't there some laws about disclosing certain things to potential buyers? Uh, we touched on that a little bit. Yeah. Um, that would be a question for a realtor. Yeah. I, I mean, I wish Keith was here. He could tell us. Uh, yeah. I believe I, there is, but I'm not sure. Okay. Okay. Um, this is a follow-up from her, from Sloan and Short Pump. She says, with the comps that check in extremely low, it sounds like they could be discounted mm -hmm. in the potential appraiser uh, appraisal. How could this influence, however, the sale of other homes in the neighborhood moving forward? That's more of a question for a realtor there. Well, I mean, you go back to Keith's uh, uh, trusted advisor stuff. You know, you want to work with, with professionals that understand how that works. And, you know, most, most good agents and brokers, they, are, they, they just like appraisers, you know, they're going to go in and look at the data and go, well, and they're going to ask questions. Why are these sales a thumb on a hand compared to everything else in the neighborhood? And um, if they're legitimate sales... That could indicate that the market's transitioning to a different direction. Um, 
you know, and we will see that once the market does become, when there's more inventory on the market and we return to our normal, sales like that will occur where they're, you know, people aren't using an agent, so they're not paying a commission, so they may discount their sale because of it. Uh, you know, they may be in a financial situation where they don't have to get the absolute most. That starts occurring more often. That becomes the, the, the flavor of the market. Um, Linford Berry, the director of the Virginia Auctioneers Association. Oh, yeah, awesome auctioneer. Is giving uh, Woody Fincham some serious props. Paul in Massachusetts says, you're crushing this right now, Woody. Thanks, Paul. Um, this is a good question. Can uh, Woody walk us through the steps he does with working with trusts and or the kids that have inherited property from their parents who have passed away? I would imagine he does a fair amount of that business. Oftentimes, this generation is looking to move property so they can get the money as opposed to holding the property like their parents may have done. Very good question right there from Matthew. So, I mean, we don't get... Matthew, speaking from personal experience here, you don't have to answer that. (laughs) We... um we don't get really involved in the ins and outs of exactly why people are doing it. They just come to us when they need a value. And oftentimes in trust and, and inheritance situations, uh, an attorney is going to, or a CPA is going to suggest to them, Hey, you need to get an appraisal. Uh, and you know, we've got good relationships with a lot of those types of professionals here in the area. So they'll recommend us to go over and, and work with them. Um, we're doing it market value. I mean, I don't care if one of the heirs want to sell it high and one wants to sell it low. We're going to, we're, we're valuing it what it should value at, uh, and, and in a, in a normal market. So, I mean, we're there to help them as a trusted advisor, Ceiling Keeps Word again, um, our term. And, uh, you know, it's, we're, we're there to help them make good decisions. I mean, my job as an appraiser is not to be high or low. It's to help people make good decisions. And by, by doing, by trying to help them make good decisions, it's, uh, it means that we're, we're offering them, you know, actual market value. We're not trying to work one direction or the other with them. All right. So his follow-up on that is, could that second generation, and he is speaking from personal experience, here, uh-huh. could that second generation ask for a number that's lower to get the property to move? And I don't want to speak for you. I would imagine that's a conversation for your agent and not necessarily an influence you want to have on the appraiser. Yeah, if you do that to me, if you engage me and tell me that, I'm going to tell you straight up. You know, my job is to be middle of the road. I've got to write a report as if I'm going to go sit in a witness box because sometimes in those situations, I got to go sit in a witness box. The last thing I want is a judge or a jury to find me. Uh, and you have exposure. Yeah, I, yeah. I can't advocate for anyone's cause. I have to do what, uh, I mean, if I'm hired for market value opinion, I'm going to give you a market value opinion, and it's not going to be higher low. Um, Nicole Allen, um, DOD appraisals are needed to help. What did she she walk us through that? That's a date of death. So, you know, oftentimes someone will pass away. We do a lot of these actually where, um, you know, um, heirs have inherited a property and they uh, need to get a value as of the date of death. And then oftentimes they'll also do a follow-up at six months or even a year later. There's situations where we've actually done four or five appraisals over several years as the the um, the trust or the inheritance uh, the um, heirs have held the property for a length of time, and so they they, they will periodically go what we call updates uh, to find out how the market's changed. Um, Follow up question for you: You may be scooping up some business here. What percentage of the business is done for trusts and or second generation, third generation owners? Um, I'm not really understanding the question. So I guess I think what the question is, is uh, how much of your business is tied to those um, kids and or heirs that are just looking to move that property and get Honest, the cash? Honestly, I wish all of it was. I mean, that's some of my favorite work to do. Um, Why is that? I mean, lending work is a commoditized service. You uh-huh. know, I mean, I'm, I'm an expert at what I do, but lenders oftentimes don't want to pay me an expert rate. They want to pay me, you know, what they consider a competitive rate. I mean, since the um, nationally, a lot of my residential peers are hurting uh, because a lot of markets, uh, I mean, I had a colleague yesterday post on, on Facebook that they, they're in Texas, in West Texas. They've had two assignments in three months. Right. And they can't pay their bills. You know, I mean, that's unfortunate. Um, and so in those Why is that? Just no inventory selling. There's just nothing going on in those markets. And um, in those situations, lenders and appraisal management companies who order appraisals for a lot of the lenders, they, they, they exploit that. You know, I mean, whereas that market might have been getting six or $700 two years ago for an appraisal, they're trying to, you know, bet them out at $200. And there are people that have no choice. They have to take that work because they've got no other means. So I would rather, you know, work with non-lending work. Now, I have some lender clients I absolutely love, and we do a lot of veteran administration work. I'm on the VA panel, and again, that's some of my favorite work because the VA is very middle of the road. 
they've always got my back. You know, if we're in situations where consumers or agents are upset with us because of a value, the VA will, they back us up, you know, whereas lenders that can't close a deal can't make any money. So um, they, they don't like you. <laughs> it's a commission-based business, unfortunately. Absolutely. Um, this guy is a breath of fresh air. It's, the business seems like it's humming right now. Um, I have a client that's in the uh, inspection game, not mm-hmm. so much. Um, and I'm seeing some of the, the inspectors having to shift their model to the uh, inspection for informational uh, purposes only. Yeah. And or they're just charging a um, nominal flat fee to walk the property with the agent yeah. and the potential buyer. And then giving literally um, feedback on what they see verbally without providing a report as well. And so many of the deals, you know this as well as anyone, Mm -hmm. so many of the deals are happening where it's like, if you have this inspection contingency in the contract, you're probably not going to get picked from the pool of potential buyers. Yeah, if there's a cash offer with no with no uh, information needed, no due diligence to be done. That'll or, win. Yeah, they win every day. That'll win. Um, this question's come in. Can you give us some insight into what you just said, cash offers and the percentage of cash offers versus peak COVID with cash offers? Um, there's still a lot of cash in the market, um, particularly when you get into the luxury property level. But um, sometimes it's not actual cash coming out of their bank account. They're cashing out you know, investments and things like that, or they're borrowing out of their 401k or whatever. Um, so we're still seeing a lot of that. Um, uh, I've been amazed at how much cash we actually see transacting in the market. Um, you know, a, a lot of refinances we've done over the last couple of years c- during COVID and after um, were folks that were immediately refinancing a purchase where they used an investment instrument, they cashed out, and they've got like 90 days or six months they have they, to put the money back. And so they'll, they immediately will refinance the property afterwards and, 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 and do that. So cash is still king. I mean, and it, I mean, it always will be. Um, David Harmon uh, in Shaker Heights, Ohio, um, is giving you props. Thanks, and David. saying uh, you're doing a hell of a job here. Dude, the, the show with you is easy. Um, we're at the 1130 <laughs> marker here. Give some thoughts um, to the viewers and listeners on things we haven't covered that should be out there. Oh, gosh. Um, we've covered a lot. Yeah, we, we've covered a lot of ground today. That's the cool thing about doing the show is I have some questions, and then we just follow the lead of the feed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, your viewers are great. They're all very curious people, um, which I love. Um, so, um, I mean... Again, we're try- we're just coming along splendidly in the Charlottesville. So, I mean, even if you're doing, ca- I mean, we're doing a lot of uh, going back to the cash question. Um, I mean, we probably every month do four or five, half a dozen uh, appraisals for people who are buying cash because they want the due diligence. Um, but they, it's not going to affect how they negotiate. They just want to know what their position is going into the property, um, and particularly if they're paying more than list price, which is still happening. Um, so, I mean, there's. Um, Sorry, Jerry. I just don't know what else to tell you that we should talk about. <laughs> how about how we can reach you? Um, you know, we're, we're available. Um, I mean, there's not there's only two appraisers that I know of that are that are named Woody and myself and my son, and we work for the same company. So finding us online is pretty easy. Um, Seville, uh, you can reach me at my email, which is wfincham at sevillevalue.com. Uh, we're you know all over social media, so you can find us there um, via Twitter, via LinkedIn, wherever. Um, we're always happy to answer questions, even if it's something that we're not going to be working on with you for a fee. If you've got a general question or something like that, I'm always happy, particularly for our real estate agents uh, and brokers out there. I love helping you guys do what you do. Uh, and there's never there's no such thing as a stupid question. I mean, we're always happy to help you with that stuff. Woody Fincham, guys. The man is a wealth of knowledge. Fincham and Associates. Judah Whitcarrow, the director. Thank you, Woody, for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's absolutely our pleasure. Check the uh, Partners tab on RealTalkWithKeefSmith.com, and you'll see a vetted list of people you can count on to help you buy a house. Keith's been in the business for 38 years, and these are the folks that he suggests and recommend that you use. The I Love Seville show is up in one hour, and we're going to have an interview that I think is uh, going to be pretty monumental. We will chat with a former Segura Home employee that's going to offer some perspective of their time in the business and what you guys should know that is going on. So we'll hear from someone that worked for the company. Um, we'll also have a number of other news items that I don't think you guys know about, not tied to the company, but tied to Charlottesville, Almoral, and Central Virginia. This is a network where we're just trying to be the water cooler of information. We crowdsource content and, and welcome questions and perspective. Um, we'll see you in about an hour. Take care.
everybody. That was awesome. It's going to let us know when the mics are off here and the cameras are off.